Baby boomers. I used to be with it. Millennials. Okay, boomer. Generation X. What's going on? And Gen Z. <laughs> what do they have in common? Not a lot, it turns out. But one thing they can agree on is that this is the political podcast they want to listen to. Welcome to Not My Generation, the political podcast that looks at political events, news and happenings across the world and at home through a generational lens. Your hosts are Dr. Emily Stacy and Professor James Davenport, two political scientists from Rose State College. But the views expressed on this program are solely the views of the host and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. Coming up on today's program, I've just been winning friends and influencing people all over the place. I like the dude, so clearly they're not going to vote for him. I will never not love Chris Christie. Ain't nobody happy right now. And now, here are James and Emily. Hello, Emily. <laughs> that was enthusiastic, <laughs> sir. Yes, well, that was you exciting. know, it's a it's a rainy, chilly Friday here in Oklahoma. Finally, and um, I'm trying to stay. I'm keeping myself warm by having a positive attitude that won't last very long. That's very uh, cute. I've I've heard about your reign of terror this week, so I've just been winning friends and influencing people all over the place. I'm telling you, you man. Know? Yeah. Well. Let's let's just jump just into that, get, get right? Into so it. I have we had uh, Carmen Foreman on a couple yeah. of weeks back, right? Wonderful conversation about covering politics. It was one of our best, I think. Yeah, mentioned um, mentioned to her that I might want to submit some commentary. Lo and behold, they published one, right? And uh, and we'll talk, might, might talk about that a little bit later. But but my point is, most of the journalists I've interacted with have been pretty good interactions, Absolutely. right? Um, Across the board, uh, even if I don't like, even if I feel like, you know, they're taking a slant on something that isn't uh, my slant, sure. I don't have any ill will necessarily. All right. Uh, one media outlet, and I'm not going to call out anybody today. If you want to find out more about this, you can certainly go to Twitter and look me up on Twitter and see all of the back and forth on this. But one media outlet has decided they're going to do what they call these fact briefs, where they're kind of fact checking, I guess, statements that different people make or yeah. whatnot. Right. Uh, and this one did a fact check on Governor Stitt. Uh, and it was uh, something that Governor Stitt said about the poverty rate for two parent families. Right. Uh, and uh, he had a tweet said two parent families have a poverty rate of, you know, five percent or a little bit low, below five percent, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were like, oh, no, that's not right. Look at this day. The, 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 uh, the source they use is the uh, Juvenile Justice Delinquency Prevention Office of the Department of Justice, which I don't understand why. But Seems that's like the source they use. Seems like a source, yeah? Well, I would think that they would just use the Bureau. Uh, Census Bureau yeah. data okay. because, because that's where right. that department got their numbers that seems, from, right? Yeah, a little cherry-picked, maybe. So, uh, the source, and, anyway. And to get to that source, you have to jump over three or four others yeah. that substantiate Sitt's claim, okay. right? Uh, but— but here's the deal. As social scientists, we understand there is a difference between married two-parent households and just two-parent households in general. In other words, not all two-parent households are the, the two parents actually married. And there's a distinction there, right? Um, and so they were they were saying, well, he's just talking about two-parent households in general. And, the, and it is true, the poverty rate for general two-parent households is 9% or something like that, higher than that 5%, okay. right? 
Well, okay. But uh, earlier when he was announcing family month, uh-huh. he made the claim that it was married to parent households. So he's used two different terms, okay. married to parent households right. and two parent households. I think most people are not going to make the distinction. I think most people are going to assume if you're talking about two parent households, they're going to assume there's a marriage there. Okay. Okay. Um, um, And it's our, we know that that's not the assumption. So in fact, checking this, they run with the claim, the other, the second claim, and they say, no, big, bold letters. No, that's not true. Right. And my complaint was, wait a second. If you go back to what he said the first time, it absolutely is true. Mm -hmm. This fact check doesn't clarify anything about this issue for anybody, right? That's my complaint. Not that they're fact-checking him, uh, but that they don't offer any clarity to this, right? And instead of saying, if they had come out and said, well, there's a distinction. You have a a poverty rate for two-parent married households and a poverty rate for just two-parent households, and those are different poverty rates, and here they are, to me, right. that's clarifying, sure. and people can say, oh, okay, so the governor wasn't being as precise, maybe, when he said that second thing, sure. but on the whole, his point is still there, and oh, by the way, whether you're talking about married two-parent households or two-parent households that aren't necessarily married, their poverty rates are significantly below single-parent households, yeah. which is like 30%. Right. So. I was just a little aggravated. I pointed that out and they were like, oh no, we're, you know, and it's like, what's the point then? If the point of your fact checking is just to be able to say you caught somebody saying something that wasn't accurate and it's not to clear, bring clarity right. to an issue, to me, that's not helpful. Sure. And and that was my complaint. So, uh, and I went round and round with them, uh, as I said, um, then because that wasn't enough, I, right. uh, I published my commentary on the minimum wage uh, and a, the executive director for another media outlet went on and started saying, you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And basically ended up basically saying, well, you just hate poor people and you like greedy corporations. And I'm like, that's not, you can't read that into what I wrote, sure. right? Uh, and they made some claims about wages and whatnot. And I, as social scientists, I do what we do. I pull out some stuff from the Federal Reserve that says, here's the facts. Well, that doesn't matter. And I'm like, okay, if you're a reporter or journalist in general, first of all, imagine you write something on some international affairs, the Israeli-Gaza conflict or something, right? You put it out there and a journalist doesn't like what you wrote. And they start saying, uh, you know, you don't like this. You just hate one side or the other, whatever. Right. Um, Knowing that you spend a good portion of your time immersed in this, researching, writing on it. How are you going to take that criticism? It's like, wait a second. I spend a good portion of my time knowing this information. Armchair, right. right uh, and for a journalist to come out who I know doesn't right. and whose criticisms include no factual information whatsoever uh, to be out here, all that does for me is say, okay, on this issue, whatever that publication produces, I'm discounting it because, because that's the interaction I had. And so not real pleased with that. And like I said, I'm not calling these folks out in general. I think both of these publications do pretty good work. I don't have 
just a dry, I just got some complaints and I need to, to make that point that there are better ways of doing what they're trying to do than, than this stuff. And so that's my, that's my rant for the day. Um, we, we bragged on Oklahoma media last time. I got to be a little critical this time. I'm trying not to be overly hostile, but you know, some of these interactions, they need to really think a little bit more on. I, I think that we've made this a standing segment at this point. James Davenport's rant of the uh, segment, <laughs> rant, rant of the episode. I, we'll, we'll get Santiago to work on some theme music some theme for music it. For yeah. that. Oh, there's a good right. idea. Right. I know. Yeah. I have them occasionally. You have them a lot. Sometimes. That's right. Well, you have some news, right? Some uh, stuff going on. We've got some polls going on. We've got uh, something about some e- economic news that you, you thought was pretty Wait, interesting. So, yeah. So let's yeah. just. Let's see what we've got. It's been a random kind of national news week. Um, So in terms of the economic news, I thought this was really interesting. Um, So you got some data visualizations uh, of Google searches. So at the end of the year, a lot of different news organizations like to do these, uh, you know, what was Googled most? And and so they filled in the blanks. And one interesting one that caught my eye, Vox did earlier this week, um, noted that eggs, eggs was the top ranked Google search. Uh, And so the question was, why are blank so expensive in all 50 states and dc eggs is the top answer uh and so that just uh, it kind of bowls you over right uh in terms of where we are in in inflation uh and in economics right just across the board not chocolate not bread not wheat not corn eggs well yeah the the price for eggs went up and we don't have have the time to go into why all of that occurred but the price for eggs certainly went up yeah. and everybody noticed that, right? Yeah. And and it's one of those Clearly. staples. People, uh, <laughs> you use them for a ton of stuff, right? And so we include them in baking and in making yeah. breakfast and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and so we noticed that kind yeah. of thing, right? Absolutely. It's uh, really interesting. And I think that uh, it ties directly into the AP poll um, and the dissatisfaction, uh, as we've been talking about uh, in regards to the 2024 uh, election. Oh, yeah. So AP uh, and NORC put out a poll on Thursday uh, where 56% of United States adults overall uh, noted that they would be very or somewhat dissatisfied with Biden becoming the Democratic nominee. Well, I'm sorry about that, kids. Uh, While another 58%, uh, again, of adults, U.S. adults overall uh, that were surveyed noted that they would be disappointed uh, if Trump were the GOP nominee. So this is, it's 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 bad on both sides. Nobody wants. Exactly. Further, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Further, sixty-eight percent. This is even worse. Sixty-eight uh, percent are generally pessimistic about United States politics overall. So, um, you know, add that to economic woes, which we've been talking about. Everybody's kind of unhappy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's, there's uh, again, if you're on social media, you might see some of this, but uh, uh, there's this interesting debate going along. Uh, people arguing about is the economic situation of the country really as bad as people think it is or is it not as bad but people are still got hangover from the inflation that they just experienced what's going on and so there's this kind of running debate Mm -hmm. uh between you know all sorts of different people about is it uh, nate silver from uh used to be 538 uh is in this kind of running feud with another person and they're arguing over, is it bad vibes or is it actually bad economic situation? So I'm finding that kind of fascinating watching that, that argument play out. Uh, But the fact is, regardless of which, ain't nobody happy right now. Nobody is happy. And there's uh, no clear 
uh, I mean, there's nobody who's who's the successor to to either of these men. And we've we've been talking about this quite a bit, uh, you know, even though Nikki Haley did get that endorsement from AFP and the Koch brothers, um, that bump hasn't been as nearly as significant as I thought it would be. Right. He, she's still trailing yeah, uh, I, DeSantis in Iowa, for example. I think it will be interesting when voting starts taking place Agree. Uh, and to see if anybody's got a, a, a ground game that surprises yeah. us. Right. Right, in, in any of these you know, early states. And that's going to be, you know, in Iowa especially and New, and New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, the ground game is what yeah. really pays off. Yeah. And I think that's going to be, eh. although, uh, you know, Trump is a different animal, so to speak. Totally. And so I don't know that he needs a ground game such as no, any of these other candidates no. do. Clearly, the way the polling uh, the is polling, going. I the mean, polling certainly shows right. that. Exactly. Right? So. Uh, some interesting news out of New Hampshire since you said it. Uh, Nikki Haley did grab the endorsement of uh, New Hampshire Governor uh, Sununu, who was actually rumored to right. be one of the contenders uh, early on in, in per- perhaps the 2024 campaign, but eventually kind of bowed out of that. Uh, so I, I think Sununu gracefully. would have trouble getting through a Republican. I think he oh, would yeah. be seen he as a moderate. Moderate. Yeah, very centrist. I like the dude, so clearly they're not going to vote for him. Um, but a, a very telling endorsement uh, in terms of Haley getting that big mo, right? The big right. momentum. And, and, and that's what's going to be interesting to see is if if any of these folks can create any kind of momentum yeah. to to actually mount a, cha- a realistic challenge to Trump. Uh, at this point, and again, I always, at this point, there doesn't seem to be anybody who's Got that. Some of this is our fault, though, right? Why are you, is the Republican base not making that man show up? He needs to be showing up to debates. Well, this is, listen, I just, we, we've talked I about this before. This. Any 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 incumbent that has that kind of lead is never going to show up for a debate. It's, it's just not. And uh, and I, to some extent, what's he going to say that he hasn't said already? Uh, I, I, you know, they know where his positions are on things. Uh, and uh, and is it going to add? How much is it going to add to the informative nature of the debates, which is questionable anyway? So, sure. um, yes, I think as a political scientist, as somebody I'm who bothered. cares about wanting to have everybody at the table I mean, at, to at make least their a, case, a pretend active two-party right. system. I mean, I want to see that, but but that's not happening. Uh, and of course, you know, how many Democrats, there are two or three Democrats have filed, right? And there's no debates there. Biden's not going to show up and, and, and debate, debate the crystal right, warrior, you know? Marion Williamson, <laughs> so, yes. And we know yeah. they're going to lock out all of the third party candidates in the, the debates between whoever the two nominees Pretty are. Pretty different right? though. Biden's the incumbent president. Uh, that's Trump true. is not, and, uh, right? That's true. That's true. But uh, it just goes to show that's, that's the way this game some, gets played. He has made some interesting comments though lately. In fact, uh, one that caught the uh, attention of the News Nation uh, debate that was last hosted um, or the debate that was most recently hosted on December 6th, uh, where, you know, uh, folks that are coming in are poisoning, quote, the blood of our country, end quote. Um, So Trump is saying different things. Um, He's certainly saying different things. And he's backed away a little bit from uh, the GOP position on abortion uh, in in a couple of the recent statements. So we'll see how that plays out. Particularly because he's getting concerned Concerned about Nikki Haley. Well, yeah, and because that was never really an important issue to him anyway. Well, no, and, you're absolutely you know, correct about that. Um, so, again, it's just this is all going to be fascinating to oh, watch yeah, this play absolutely. out. Uh, I, I think uh, 
can any of these Republicans, yeah. and you're really down to DeSantis and Haley, right? We know yeah. Chris, Chris Christie is just God there bless that man. To, to attack I will, Trump. I will never not love He's Chris Christie. He's playing the Bob Anthony role when Kirk yeah. Humphreys yep. and Tom Coburn yep. ran for Senate. Uh, his job is just to be there to make sure Kirk Humphreys doesn't, doesn't win. win. So, mm-hmm. so that's that's uh, Chris Christie. I'm here to try to make sure. But uh, at this point, he's like a fly on the wall. He's a nuisance, but he's not an, He's not making it. I would rather yeah. listen to him than Ramaswamy any day. Uh, well, yeah. And, and well, I forgot about Ramaswamy. I, he's not polling much as close as the other two are. Uh, he's there. I, I think he's like the entertainment factor that is, is there now. I don't know. It's terrible entertainment, friends. Um, Congress did finally pass uh, the $886 billion defense spending bill uh, for Ukraine, Israel. Uh, they did strip most of it the, uh, of the kind of GOP uh, border, uh, southern borders uh, provisions. So is that the, the Senate or the House set? Both. Both of them have passed. Okay, yeah, both. so both at this point. Interesting. Okay, um, so that that kind of got through, and we'll see uh, what happens from here on that. Uh, and in terms of other just kind of random news, and we'll get to our guest. Right, we're trying to segue. I'm trying to segue. Uh, so the Supreme Court news, right? You got a couple of different, uh, pretty important, uh, not decisions, but. Um, uh, Cases put on the docket. Thank you. Words that are coming to me. Um, so number one, they're taking up the Trump 2020 election case, which is interesting, right? So uh, you had special prosecutor Jack Smith, uh, a special counsel, I should say, uh, asking the Supreme Court to decide uh, whether or not Trump is actually immune from prosecution. Of course, uh, you remember the good old Nixon line, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Jack Smith wants to kind of figure out whether or not uh, that is the case. Uh, you also have the Supreme Court uh, looking over an appeal uh, about the obstruction charges related to January 6th, uh, which could have a definite impact on his indictment there and his culpability uh, or liability in in some of those cases, the election fraud cases. Um, and then finally, and I will acquiesce and move around from, from here, um, the Supreme Court did decide to take up uh, the abortion pill case. Right. Um, so that decision is expected by the end of June of 2024. Um, this has been kind of the we we've been waiting, uh, I think, for the Supreme Court to kind of make a more kind of definitive um, declaration about what in it, what is and isn't um, accessible or should be, and so it, it kind of comes on the heels uh, of this week uh, of the Texas mother um, who has had. <laughs> a ruling um, that she could seek an abortion uh, and legally obtain one in Texas because of the viability of her fetus and the likelihood that it would affect her ability to get pregnant in the future, um, only to have that overturned by the Texas Supreme Court. Um, and then she, my understanding is she just left went out of state. state. Yeah, right. Um, and so these are, you know, all sorts of real decisions that are that are having, you know, real world effects. So uh, we'll see what your Supreme Court says about things. About this stuff, right. And that leads us to our guest today that uh, I'm pleased to, to to have on. We're talking about courts, and now we're going to be shifting to courts in Oklahoma. We have with us Ryan Haney, who serves as the Criminal Justice Reform Fellow for the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Uh, prior to being with OCPA, he practiced law in Oklahoma City, uh, and his work included representing the criminally accused in state and federal courts. Uh, He's active in the Federalist Society, serves as program director for the Oklahoma City Lawyers Chapter, 
and he has a BA from the University of Oklahoma, as well as his JD is also from uh, the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Uh, and he and his wife and children here live here in Oklahoma City. And Ryan's going to talk to us about some proposals, I think, that are in. In fact, I think somebody offered some legislation on uh, They actually offered legislation on this. I thought I saw something about that. Maybe I was wrong. Might, might have been mistaking that with something else. But talking about judicial reform in Oklahoma, right? Right. Thank you for your patience in letting us get to you. There's all sorts of stuff we it. had to cover. But um, first thing I would like to do, let's be honest, how the judiciary works in the state is not the sexiest types of stuff. You and I and Emily might grew to that because we're a little bit nerdy on, on this type of stuff. But I think a lot of people don't understand how the selection of especially appellate justices in the state of Oklahoma occurs. So before we get to some of your your proposals for reforming that, uh, I'd like to you just walk us through how does this current system operate? Yeah, yeah so th- it's a great question. And you're right. It's it's not well understood. And I, I, th- I actually think it's helpful to think about not just uh, Oklahoma, but sort of what is the history of judicial selection like in this country and in Oklahoma? Because it's actually really interesting. Um, so at the time of the founding uh, of, of the United States, most states uh, selected their judges through the legislature. Okay. So the legislature was who appointed uh, judges and justices to state appellate courts. And of course, the reason is that there was a there was a a desire to balance independence of the judiciary. Right, you don't want the judges beholden to a particular person, right? Because that was one of the complaints of the colonists at the at the time of the American Revolution. Right, if you read the Declaration of Independence, one of the things they are complaining about is that the king appoints judges, and if he doesn't like the rulings he gets, he just yanks them and puts somebody else in that that he likes, and is going to give him the rulings that he wants. And so uh, appointment by a legislature was seen as balancing democratic accountability, you know, because they're they're appointed by people that we elect, um, while also uh, providing some level of, of independence. Or I'm sorry, re- re- yeah, yeah, some level of independence. And of course, the federal government was doing it, the, you know, the way that we all learn sort of in Schoolhouse Rock, where the president goes out and picks their nominee which is subject then to the advice and consent role of the Senate. So uh, the Senate has to approve of the president's uh, selection. And Uh, that's not a rubber stamp, by the way, right? There have been times the Senate has said no, not often, um, but there have been some of those times, right? Yeah, and and I think importantly, even though though for the first, say, 200 years, uh, it was very – as a matter of fact, I don't know that there was ever – an, a nominee that wasn't confirmed because uh, if, now in, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is because the court became more political around the New Deal era, mm-hmm. um, and so you know politics sort of became a, a bigger, a bigger, a bigger part of that selection process. Um, but also, presidents have had to; they've gone into the process knowing I've got to get this person confirmed by the Senate. So I've got to go pick somebody who I can get confirmed. And so, it, and, and I'll talk a little about, about sort of the Trump effect a little bit later, but this is when people give Trump sort of like 100% of the credit for uh, justices that they like, uh, you know, Barrett, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I often have to remind them, actually, it's Mitch McConnell that you should think because 
uh, he's the one who got rid of that the filibuster rule, right? So, you know, people will complain, well, you know, George W. Bush put uh, John Roberts on the court. Well, that's because Bush had to get a, a filibuster-proof vote in the Senate, right? So you got to put a very different nominee before that Senate than than uh, than the Senate now, as it, as it's currently done. So that, I think that's important to remember. But but yeah, so at the time of the founding, most states, and there are still two states, South Carolina and Virginia, that that do it that way. Um, but then in the 19th century, you sort of had this Jacksonian populist era, right, where all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, we should just elect everybody for everything. We should have popular elections, and. Um, <clears throat> Regardless of how you feel about that, there was a populist wave that that swept through the country. Uh, Oklahoma was founded during sort of the tail end of that populist wave. And so in Oklahoma, similar to many other states, uh, when we were founded, we selected our appellate judges in partisan elections. So judges ran with R's, D's, I's, L's, and whatever else next to their name. By the way, I think that's the most awful way judges can be selected that we can imagine for a whole variety of reasons. But go on. I just want, I, I, I just got to let it go. The progressives are going to tell you, hold my beer. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> the election of judges is just not a good idea. I don't think at any level uh, and for, for a variety of reasons, it, it just like you don't want them beholding to, uh, a king or a president, you know, I also don't want them holding to the whims of the majority at any given point in time either. And, and well, so, yeah, let me deviate. This is sort of out, out of uh, order of the order I normally talk about this, but let's talk about independence, right? Um, it, as in an independent judici- judiciary, right? Which is um, the best metaphor for a judge is the judge as umpire, Right. So um, the umpire sits behind uh, the, the catcher and they call balls and strikes. Uh, they don't get to say what the strike zone is. The legislature's that's, that's, that's the legislature's decided. job, right? The legislature sets the strike zone in this metaphor. And then they say, is it in the strike zone or is it out the strike zone? Right. Balls and strikes. That's what judges ought to do. Uh, when we're worried, of, when we talk about independence, what we're worried about is that they'll go outside of that role and that they will start making policy. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the preferences of some class of people that they are worried about either being beholden to. Now, I would argue, and I have argued, that the best way, and and I'm not the first to make this argument, uh, Alexander Hamilton makes it in The Federalists, which is that the best way to ensure independence, uh, he, he notes two things, which are both in the United States Constitution. One is life tenure, right? So once you are appointed, you have that position so long as you don't do anything that is impeachable, right? And that that insulates the judiciary from the mob, right? right? So like, and we see, we it doesn't mean mobs don't show up. We see them all the time outside the Supreme Court building to which the Supreme Court says, we don't care. Um, you know, we're going to do what we feel like is right and within the law, and we're going to sort of to do our best to uphold the rule of law, regardless of what the mob thinks. Uh, the second thing is that you can't that, that you don't allow the legislature to reduce their pay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and both of those things are enshrined in the United States Constitution. Um, how how judges are selected really has nothing to do with their independence, in, in my opinion. And, and frankly, this this works against my own political persuasion here because. 
if you think about uh, probably three of the most uh, three, three United States Supreme Court justices, let's use them because they're high profile, who have done the most as far as like you might call like shifting in their approach to the law. Uh, we're all appointed by Republicans. So it, it, I'm thinking of uh, Justices O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Souter, uh, all either Reagan or H.W. Bush appointees. All of them sort of shifted to the center, shifted to the left from where we probably would have thought they would have been when they were appointed. And the reason is they're not beholden at all to Reagan or right. President Bush, right? So so we have – well, actually, I'm going to put a pin in that because I'll get back to what we have later. Um, but at, at the at, – where, where I was is that when Oklahoma was founded, we had um, we had judicial elections and they were partisan. Many states still have judicial elections. Some are partisan, some are nonpartisan. Um, and, you know, we, you, we if we wanted to, we could sort of debate the merits of that. I, but that's not really what I want to do. Um, suffice it to say that after this populist movement, there's this new era that I call the progressive era. And this is, you know, uh, the Woodrow Wilson, what we really need is a, is experts. And I say that, you know, with the scare quotes, sort of, we need experts who are apolitical outside the political process, basically telling us how to run our lives. Right. And so this is how we get, you know, some unelected bureaucrat with a PhD in Washington telling you what you can't do with the drainage ditch in your backyard, because it's a water of the United States. And it's why we have, you know, unelected bureaucrats with PhDs in Washington saying every child needs to be educated the exact same way. Right. And so this is around the beginning of the 20th century. And around that time, the American Bar Association comes up with sort of their own progressive era plan for appointing judges and justices uh, that they call merit selection. And the idea is exactly kind of what I was just talking about. Right. That we want an apolitical system paneled by experts, people who actually know what they're talking about. Uh, to pick judges because we can't possibly leave that, you know, I think probably to your point that we can't leave that to the electorate, right? Um, you know, they are a bunch of rubes and they don't know what they're talking about. Well, that didn't really, there was not much traction for that in Oklahoma at the time. Um, <clears throat> despite Oklahoma being very sort of favorable to like new deal type policies and whatnot. Um, but then in the 1960s, there was a judicial scandal um, and uh, essentially Justice Korn admitted that for 25 years he had been taking bribes to uh, affect his decision in cases. And he had also dispersed uh, some of these bribes, although a small fraction of the bribes to some of his uh, fellow justices to get majorities. And so this, you know, this shocked people um, and rightly so. And um, not wanting, you know, a, a scandal to go to waste, uh, people immediately started, you know, thinking, well, hey, this could be our, this is our opportunity to get this merit selection plan, which people had begun calling the Missouri plan because Missouri was the first state to adopt it. So there, uh, there was a, a vote of the people because these are constitutional issues. So they, they require a vote of the people. There was a vote where there were actually two ballot measures dealing with judicial reform on the ballot in 1967, I believe. And uh, one of them was to change our election system from partisan election of judges to nonpartisan election of judges so that judges would still stand for election, but that they would not have – 
Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever next to their name. And I think you would probably agree that if you're going to have elections, that's probably a better way to select judges. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) If you're going to elect them, nonpartisan, I I would prefer. Uh, But I also know that turnout for nonpartisan races is lower than turnout for partisan races. So it depends on what you want, how many people you want voting on that. Uh, And my complaint, at least in in Oklahoma, the way we do it right now is nobody knows these judges anyway. Nobody's paying attention. Uh, I could go out on the street and and find 100 people and tell them, can you name a member of the Oklahoma Supreme Court? And I bet if if more than one could tell me that, I would be shocked. Because yeah. uh, they just don't know. Yeah. And not only do they not know who they are, they don't really know much about their rulings. Right. Uh, and so yeah, I think part of that's by design. Uh, it might be. <laughs> it might be. But, you know, um, I just think oh, we're voting on people we don't know. We don't understand what they do. Uh, we uh, Why? Yeah. No, Democracy, I think, but no. I think that's totally fair. I think that's totally fair. But in any event, that was one of the ballot questions. And the second ballot question was, uh, moving to this judicial nominating commission, merit selection, Missouri plan, whatever you want to call it. I like to call it lawyer selection, and I'll talk about why in a minute. Um, but they were both on the same ballot. And the nonpartisan election got more votes, both more people voted on that question, which this is like for political scientists, I'm sure you're. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you could look at, like why would more people vote on one? I'm sure they thought that they had to vote on one or the other, right? <laughs> but anyhow, like uh, more people voted in the in the election on the election for nonpartisan yeah, for nonpartisan elections um, than voted on the other one, and it got more votes. They both passed. Okay. And this is another sort of like really interesting po- sort of political trick that I plan to write on in the near future. Uh, they both pass, and the nonpartisan elections actually passes with a bigger majority. Okay. So the question that hopefully listeners are sitting there scratching their heads over is, okay, well then why do we then have this judicial nominating commission uh, rather than nonpartisan elections? And it's because there was uh, a clause in the, the second ballot measure that said if both of them, and, and of course I'm paraphrasing here, it didn't say this, it didn't say it this way, but essentially what it said is that they both pass. This is the one that, that controls. Okay. So, so it had like a controlling clause. For the Missouri plan, that's right. That's that clause is in there that says if both of these measures pass, regardless of what the vote outcome is, right. this is the one that will be going into effect. Yeah. Okay. And it's funny because like the other one is law. <laughs> it's just it just doesn't it's control just doesn't anything. Yeah. All right. So so let's walk through how does the this judicial nominating commission work, right? How do we yeah, that's the how, next do, logical. how do we get uh judges to, and it only applies to appellate court and up, right? So district judges in Oklahoma still are elected. It's a qualified yes. In nonpartisan elections. If there's a vacancy midterm, even the district trial court judges go through through the the JNC, which is what I'm going to refer to from here on out because it's just easier. Um, So uh, so yes, the JNC is the sort of pre, it's the screening body for the Court of Criminal Appeals, the Court of Civil Appeals, and the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And then if there is a, a midterm vacancy in the, the district court, so like Oklahoma County District Court, Tulsa County District Court, whatever, uh, then the JNC also works as a screening body for those midterm uh, vacancies. So uh, the JNC is a 15-person commission. Okay. And How it, do I get to be on that commission? 
um, well, you have, you probably, it would probably help if you, uh, donated to, um, a political candidate. Oh, so, but so well, l- l- let me break it down. So, so the first six members, I think just naturally, the first six members are six members chosen, elected by the Oklahoma Bar Association. And these people are all lawyers. So, um, as, as, as a licensed attorney, I have a vote in one of the seats on the JNC. And, um, and so, so that's the first six, the second six, and now we're up to 12 are selected by the governor. And again, as, as part of this, this theory that we're going to make this apolitical, the governor has some limitations on who he can put on there. So he cannot put any, he or she cannot put any more than three of their six. And of course they're staggered terms. So it's not like you get all six at once. once. Right. Um, They're staggered terms, but only three of them can be from the same party. Um, So you've got to have sort of some, some political mixture on there. Right. Um, And then also none of None of the other nine, so you've got the six that are selected from the Bar Association that are all attorneys. The other nine cannot be attorneys, nor can they be the immediate family member of an attorney. So the governor cannot put me on there. He can't put my wife on there. Um, if your wife is an attorney, then sorry, you're... She couldn't be. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't be. So the funny thing is, like, if your wife is an attorney, you cannot be on the JNC at all because you, you can't be elected by the Bar Association. And you also can't be appointed by any of the other people. So it's kind of, it's kind of wild in that sense. Um, but then uh, the, the Senate pro tem gets a vote or gets an appointment. The Speaker of the House gets an appointment. And now we're up to 14. Those 14 get together and they find like an at-large person okay. <laughs> that, 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 right. that they then put on. So um, the, and, and I, I, I thought this was really funny as I was listening to y'all talk about news and, and your rant earlier. You were talking – one of the things you brought up is that these people – uh, assume that you don't spend a, a, a fair amount of your time thinking about these issues and sort of like the criticisms that you get. I, I experienced the exact same thing, right? So a lot of people, whenever I bring, whenever I start talking about the need to change the system, they'll say, well, you say it's controlled by lawyers. Lawyers only make up six, uh, six of the 15 people. Well, of course I know that I'm, I'm not, a moron. I mean, and most of the time I've already acknowledged this fact and then people still bring that up. Well, you, you know, but again, to the extent that lawyers are the ones who have, say, practiced with or in front of these people, because many of the appellate, the candidates for appellate judge have already served as trial court judge, right? Um, so, you know, the, the subject matter expertise, so to speak, 100% of that comes from the Bar Association, members of the Bar Association. So as, a, as an attorney, I... I, I am a part of a group that makes up less than 1% of the population, but we have 40% of the judicial nominating commission, right? And the idea that a lawyer should not be able to pick their judge is an idea as old as the common law itself, right? I mean, like for obvious reasons. And yet nine of the last 10 chairs of the JNC have been attorneys. Um, you know, they also, the, the bar association also acts as though I don't know about the judicial scandal, of the 1960s, which of course I know about the judicial scandal, but as I've stated, well, just like we talked about earlier, how the process for appointing a, a judge or a justice doesn't, is not what makes them independent. It's that sort of life tenure that makes them independent. The JNC does nothing to prohibit a, a, a scandal like we had in the 1960s, right? I mean, 
just because you have not yet done anything that would cause you to not pass an OSBI background check or whatever, doesn't mean that in the future you wouldn't take a bribe. And of course, just as Korn, when he admitted taking bribes, he said, I've been doing it for 25 years, which means for 24 years, everyone thought that everything was fine. So when they say like, well, it works, I'm like, well, it might be working. And of course, like, who is it working for? Um, but I sort of digress. So, you know, again, like the, the idea that, you know, when, when I say I call it lawyer selection, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that this tiny sliver of the population gets 40%. Of course, they're 100% of the subject matter expertise, uh, nine of the last 10. And if we went back even further, I suspect the, the percentage would actually get higher of the chairs of the JNC are the attorney members. Um, I mean, I just don't think I have to really justify that point that much, right? So, so what's the reform? So, yeah. So, um, let, let let me make sure two things. Number one, so um, the criticism here is that lawyers have an outsized influence, and especially lawyers from this one group of lawyers, the the bar, right? That they have an outsized influence on the selection of judges. Is that? Is that accurate? Is that what you're that's, saying? Yeah, that's part. Of, yeah, that's that's a large part of it. Okay. Um, it's yeah. also just shrouded in secrecy, right? Like we okay. don't know. We this don't is know. what I want to get to. Is what are, are there any other criticisms you want yeah. to point out as as to how this process plays out? Absolutely. Um, you know the this so the the great thing about um, you know for all the for all of the circus that that the federal judiciary appointment process has become, and it has become a three ring circus. We at least all get to see it. Like we can turn on C-SPAN and, um, you know, we have, you know, the, the meme of Amy Coney Barrett holding up the blank notepad. Like we got to see that. We got to see how the process went. We get to see them ask questions and answer those questions. Um, we have no idea what's going on with the JNC. And as a, as an anecdote, um, you know, uh, we have a, a federal district judge here in the Western district of Oklahoma, uh, Judge Wyrick, uh, who has gone through both processes, mm-hmm. right? Um, of course, nobody knows what he was asked or anything when he went through the JNC process to be on the Oklahoma State Supreme Court. And I'm told that he was not even requested, that a writing sample was not even required okay. that you can do, you can submit a writing sample. Of course, these are people that are writing the law, right? I mean, um, whereas, uh, then he went through the process, you know, because now we're talking about life tenure, right? right. Uh, Article three judge. Um, and, uh, you know, now he's got to go to Washington, sit be- sit before uh, not just, you know, people that might be friendly, Ted Cruz and Ben Sass and uh, those folks, but also Cory Booker and Kamal Harris. Like other people, people are right? going to push back a little bit. Absolutely. They're going to ask tough questions there. And. And we've and we've also seen the the instances where these people don't know what the heck they're talking about, right? Um, and and whether or not these are sort of like fair criticisms, there was a there was a Trump judge or a, a, a judge that Trump had appointed to the D.C. Circuit, I believe, who had who had spent his entire career doing administrative law work at an agency. And of course, like my argument is that in in the D.C. Circuit, all they do is admin law; they're not trying cases. But of course, like he didn't, he couldn't tell you what a motion in limine was. He didn't know what all these different things were. And it's embarrassing, right? It makes you look unprepared. But of course, we all saw that. It's, it's sort of, and we know how people vote. That's another important thing, right? And so I don't know how the members of the JNC are voting on any particular uh, nominee. And, and there have been some changes lately. And I don't know if that's one of the changes, the changes that they made. Um, <clears throat> but, um, 
before, uh, as sort of a transition into like what I would like to see it, the policy change to, uh, let's talk about briefly 2016, right? Trump wins the election. And I think a lot of people are frankly shocked. Probably all three people in this room yeah. shocked. I don't think anybody um, expected that. Now, one of the reasons I think you could point to as to why he won, uh, especially courting conservatives who had serious doubts about his his record, not that he had like a legislative record or whatever, but just his record of statements is he released um, a document that said, look, here's a list of people. Heritage that if you, approved, right? If you, well, yeah. Heritage, Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, the whole deal, right? Says if you, if you elect me, these are the people I will consider for the, for the, for the Oklahoma, for the, for the United States Supreme Court. And also the the circuit courts and the and and of course Patrick Weirich, who I just mentioned, Judge Weirich, was on that list um, at the time he was on the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Um, and I think a lot of people were like, "Oh man, if he's for real about that, then like that's that's different. Like I can vote, I can vote for that guy." I think now. you're right for conservative voters that 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 would huge. have been. And I people I still talk to who are very much adamant Trump supporters. Yeah. The court nominees are the year, first thing that they that bring. First up. year, it was like yeah. but Gorsuch, right? That was like right. the meme, yeah. but Gorsuch. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and I, we don't have time to get into uh, yeah. uh, responding. But my that, point but, is, my point yeah. is, he made good on that campaign promise. And for conservatives, like it's been banger decision after banger decision, yeah. right? It's like you get you've gotten good decisions on obviously abortion, mm -hmm. but on the Second Amendment with the the gun club case that came out of New York, you've got good admin law decisions with the West Virginia EPA case. Um, you got uh, the affirmative action decision that came out this this summer. Um, so it's like, but the problem is, if su suppose you wanted to run for governor, Professor Davenport in uh, a couple of years and you said, Hey, like that was a great idea. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go to the Oklahoma chapter federal society and OCPA and whoever else. And I'm going to come up with a list of conservative lawyers that I would appoint to the Oklahoma Supreme court. And I'm going to publish that list and say, vote for me. And these are the people that I'm going to, I'm going to put on the court. Well, the JNC would just look at you and laugh and say, well, good luck. We can blackball every single one of those candidates. Right. Um, and so that's a problem. Um, I think. Okay. So let's get to yeah. your proposed fix and then uh, and go quick because yeah. I know we both have some questions we want to yeah, kind of yeah, pepper yeah. you with when, when, you're, when you're done. Well, so. luckily, the fix is really easy. <laughs> I want to copy and paste from the United States Constitution uh, and, and then change a few words here and there, okay. right? So here's my ideal solution because if it's good enough for James Madison, it's good enough for me. Um, the governor can go and pick whoever he wants to be on these courts of appeals. Uh, subject to the advice and consent of the Oklahoma Senate. Now, are there some areas of compromise that I'm willing to compromise on? Sure. You know, if the house, the house may very well decide that they have to have a say. Don't leave us out. Maybe. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and also I'd like to, I'd like to give these judges life tenure and, and truly make them independent because right now, and I put a pin in this a while ago, right now we've got these silly retention ballots, which are totally without teeth. Not a fan of them. Um, Not a fan of them. No one, no one's ever successfully been eliminated. So we've got this veneer of democratic accountability that is a total farce. And if anything, it is that veneer of dem democratic accountability through the retention ballot that theoretically subjects them to uh, less independence from the mob. Right, right. So that that's sort okay. of the quick and dirty. So 
So we want to apply them, and that would be all the way down or just for those appellate justices? Uh, just for the appellate. So, okay. I mean, it, that's, I think we need a, a later fix on those midterm vacancies, um, but arguably you don't need a fix statutorily. It just depends on how the courts interpret that, but that's, I think, probably beyond where we want to go right now. All right. Emily, so why, why is this reform necessary or beneficial for citizens? Um, well, I, because I think it's important that, uh, people have, I think that balance that I've been sort of talking about of democratic accountability with independence is actually really important. And as of right now, uh, there is no democratic accountability, um, because, uh, people can, you know, uh, nominees can essentially just be, be blackballed by this commission of, of lawyers. And uh, sort of anecdotally, I've never served on the commission. The Bar Association certainly isn't going to elect me to be on the JNC. Um, but, uh, you know, anecdotally, I've heard of people who have gone through the process, have been uh, treated really poorly because, you know, it was it was there was a sense that like, hey, we, you know, it, we think the governor might actually want you on there. Are you just beholden to the governor? Like, and then it's like, well, now people of that per, sort of political persuasion, they don't want to go through that process. And so, um, you know, there are certainly people who, who say, well, yeah, this is all well and good for you right now, Ryan, because you trust Governor Stitt to put the people that you would like on there. But what if we had, you know, Governor Hoffmeister in a couple of years? Well, of course, the reality is the JNC is, has never and is not an impediment to Democrat governors. Um, you know, I the people that they sent to Brad Henry are the people that like Brad Henry was fine with. And of course, here's the other thing about the JNC as well. If the governor doesn't like the three people that the JNC send him, uh, he can't reject the slate and say, send me three more, three more. If he doesn't pick within 60 days, then the chief justice selects one of the three from those three. Yeah. Okay. So that's the rule. So there's, I think it's a, it's a total lack of democratic accountability. Um, and also it, it also doesn't give us independence. So like, Neither of those things are served by this body that meets sort of in a dark, behind closed doors, not subject to the Open Meetings Act, not subject to the Open Records Act. Um, so I don't think we're getting any of what you really want from, uh, from, from that process. What we are getting is we have lawyers who pick the judges. And of course, like, you know, the court overturning things like tort reform are not the kind of things that fire up the Republican base, mm -hmm. but they certainly are a, are a windfall for the very lawyers who are championing this judicial nominating commission. You got another one? Yeah. All right. So I'm, I was looking at, you guys had an article up on, uh, on your website at OCPA. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray Carter published yeah. this, talking about this. And here's where I want to go with this, because I want you to make me the case that this isn't just Republicans who have a control of the legislature, who have control of the executive branch, who don't feel like they have exclusive control of the judiciary, and this is your chance to grab that. Uh, and when I read this article, here's, here's what it is. Oklahomans ha have elected Republicans at the state and federal level, no Democrat candidate, but that's not how the courts work. So how is this not? And I know you've probably had people already throw this kind of lob at you. So, uh, but how is this not viewed as simply a grab for the majority party to take over the judiciary? That listeners was my next question, but I let James Davenport have it. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and it's a great question. And, uh, and to a certain degree, I think it is because, um, I don't have a problem saying that I think that, um, 
Oklahoma judges should be somewhat reflective of Oklahoma values. I don't have a problem with that at all. Like that doesn't bother me in the least. Now that said, I think there's also an important point to be made. Assuming that I agreed with them on everything, the reality is like they're also just not very serious. And I wish that we had more time for me to really dive into this. But I mean, the number of cases where they just don't even write an opinion, like we're, we're just not, we're not even getting Oklahoma's best and brightest lawyers on Supreme Court. And that's not to say that they're all terrible because I think there's some pretty good ones on there. Uh, even some of the ones that I disagree with. Um, because I think any judge that you agree with all the time probably isn't worth their salt. Right. But, um, you know, they're, they're writing, sometimes they're not writing opinions and oftentimes they're writing opinions that are incoherent. Um, and also, and maybe this is the best way to end on, if you want to keep sort of like politics out of it, out of the judiciary, the best way to do that is to keep the judiciary out of politics. They need to stop making policy for Oklahomans. That is a that is the job of the legislature. And again, we could probably have an, a whole entire other podcast on how these are sort of like legislators in black robes, right? Um, and so that would be that would be sort of like my quick and dirty answer, like not running from maybe the accusation at all, but also noting that there is. I can absolutely make the principled argument all day long as well. Okay. I think we're about wrap, running out of time here. I want to uh, say we're going to be following this as the legislative session progresses. We'll see if something happens. Maybe we'll have you come back on. Uh, I'm sure we'll have somebody else come back on as well, uh, talking about their perspective, give you a chance to to come back on and, and elaborate a little bit more. Uh, theoretically, I'm very partial to the federal model. Um uh, I would be I would be inclined to think this might work depending on how it's implemented. Uh, I think you could alleviate some of the concerns about partisanship and how it's alleviate uh, implemented. Some some you're never going to get away from, uh, but uh, uh, but I don't have the angst that that you guys might with the current system. Uh, although I'm not embroiled in it and I don't deal with it every day, so. Uh, but uh, I appreciate you coming on and offering up uh, your your take on this, giving us some opportunity to ask you some questions about it. No, thanks so uh, much. I think it is important uh, th that people understand how this process works. Absolutely. Judges are the third part of the 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 government, right? Yeah, and, we, and we used to think they're the the least dangerous branch. It turns out that they might be the they, most dangerous. Sometimes they can be more so than than you think. And so paying attention to this matters. And uh, certainly appreciate you joining us. Emily, do you have anything else you want to add to this? I think this is Happy Holidays episode, yeah? It might be. I think yeah. this is yeah. the last one. So, so yeah. we, I thought Trump said we could say Merry Christmas. Well, we can say Merry Christmas. <laughs> we can say Happy <laughs> Holidays. We can say Wonderful Winter Winter Break. Whatever you want to do, we are we are an inclusive bunch. Here, uh, uh, exactly. not, not my generation, uh, but uh, thanks for everybody for listening and uh, remember. Democracy is not a spectator sport. We love communication that goes both ways, not just you listening to us pontificate. We would love to hear from our audience. If you have comments, suggestions, or would like to contact us about possibly being a guest on the show, please email notmygeneration at raider.rose.edu.